Well, good morning. Good to see you. My name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my great delight to be able to get into the word with you this morning. But let me preface things with this. I don't, I really like to teach in themes and in series. Right, so we, we've gone through Philippians, we, we did Ephesians before that, we did uh, a lengthy study through Revelation, and next week we start the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, which will take us about a year. And so Pastor Charles was like, well, we're going to start Mark on, on kickoff weekend, and I said, that's awesome, great, and you're preaching the week before. I said, okay, but Philippians is done, so that means that I got to just pick something out of 66 books. Out of the, and not the stuff that we've already done, because then somebody will go, well, you've already preached that recently. Couldn't just use an old one. So this is not what I prefer to do. So thanks, Pastor Charles. Appreciate you. The next time that there's a one-off, it better be you doing it and not me. But all that to say, uh, as we get into the Word this morning, I hope that what I have to share with you is encouraging to your heart. Over the course of the summer, I've read three books. Uh, I've read these three books right here. One called uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. Cannot highly enough recommend this book. So, so, so incredibly helpful. It's just about the fact that, you know, we're way too busy and we focus on the wrong things. The second one was called Gentle and Lowly by a guy named Dane Ortland. And it's about the heart of Jesus for people because we often get this wrong and it's very, very helpful. The third one was called Deeper also by Dane Ortland, And I read that book, and it's all about discipleship and how Jesus' heart for us actually leads to the thing that makes us become more fully formed disciples. What's interesting about those books is they all focused on the same passage. So you think that God actually wants to direct our attention to things. He, he has done that for me this summer. And so that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be looking at the passage that these books were talking about. And so a lot of the material that I'm, I'm drawing from is from these guys' ideas. But as I work through the passage, you'll see the implications for us as we look to it. So the title today is Christ's Heart for Us. Because I often think that we get this wrong. We, we think a lot of things about Jesus, but I don't know if it's actually the core of what we're supposed to think about for Jesus. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and we are going to read Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. And you can listen as I read this. Very, very famous passage. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Man, you can be seated. We're about to do it again, aren't we? We're about to get back into the hustle and bustle of regular routines. The things that we had probably taken a little bit for granted over the last couple of years because we weren't able to do them. And hopefully now we're kind of beyond the COVID restrictions and the impacts of those things in our lives. Schools are getting back into in-person learning. Extracurricular activities are happening. Uh, people are getting their kids back into dance and piano and, and sports and all these kinds of things. And that's stuff that we missed out on, we're able to get back to. But here's a thought. Here's a caution. Didn't we learn to enjoy the slower pace a little bit? Didn't we enjoy the calmer kind of, it did need to stop. And didn't we enjoy those ceasing of the fast-paced 
hustle of our regular routines, our, our hurried and continual lives of go, 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 go. And as I look around the room, I'm seeing parents whose kids are in baseball and hockey and piano and dance and all the rest of it. And so you're just the taxi service. Now you've got to fix the taxi service into the regular routine of school and the other things that are going to go on. And while I, com- I completely remember all the stuff of the stoppages of COVID, I remember the gift that it was for my soul. That I had to stop. I had to slow down. It was difficult, yes. But if we took the advantage of it, it actually gave us the opportunity to learn how to best rest. So here's the big idea today. To find true rest, Jesus invites us to himself as savior and as teacher and as friend. None of this is gonna be new, I just hope that it's fresh. To find true rest, Jesus invites us to himself as savior and as teacher and as friend. So let's go and walk through the passage together. Jesus starts, he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. There's a very exclusive claim that Jesus is making here. Say, come to me. Don't, don't go looking in some other place. You're not going to find rest in some other place. You're going to find it in me. But this word come actually can be better translated as follow, which really shouldn't surprise us. If you've been in church for any length of time, then you've heard that phrase before, come and follow Jesus, come and do like Jesus. But the interesting thing is that this is not a command as much as it is an invitation. Jesus is saying, come to me, which is the Greek word, duete, which is is more like an invitation, a welcoming kind of presence, and I will give you rest. See, every time that Jesus called somebody to his side in, in in the pattern of the Gospels, it was an invitation. If somebody was asking Jesus, how do I get eternal life? How do I become part of the kingdom of God? How do I, how do I make sure that I have eternity? Uh, his invitation was always the same. Come and follow me. That's what he said. It was kind of his, his method of operation, as it were. And this invitation is the whole of what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus, coming to him at the exclusion of all others. See, in our very very kind of uh, uh, polytheistic in terms of the way that we view religion uh, in, in a world that all religions are created equal. And the, and the view of that is if, if all crea- if religions are created equal, then all of them are kind of the same and none of them have a direct view on reality that's different than anybody else. In our Western society that thinks this way, the, the claim of an exclusive savior is quite alarming. Well, this is exactly what Jesus does. Come to me. Not come to a system not come to a law, not come to a building, not come to a pattern, a person. Come to a person. And then Jesus says, I will give you rest. Continuing that exclusive thought that only it is him that can actually provide for us what our souls truly, desperately need. But look who he invites, because this seems a little bit backwards, right? To all who are weary and burdened. Like if Jesus was choosing people for a team, you wouldn't want to choose the weak guy who's, all, like, who's stressed out all the time. But that's who Jesus chooses. Now, to those who are weary, the word is actually to toil, to exhaustion. Anybody feel like that ever? Like you're just going at a pace that can't be maintained? Yeah, me too. 
But in this context, it's actually religious speak that Jesus is saying those who are toiling under this heavy load, those who are toiling to exhaustion, trying to live up to some expectation or some kind of, uh, some kind of maintaining this, this view of I've actually got my life together. Jesus is saying to those people, come to me because I will give you rest. You don't have to do that anymore. The word burdened is, to, is the idea of toiling to exhaustion under a heavy load or an encumbering load, something that keeps you down, keeps you bound, keeps you oppressed, keeps you from actually enjoying the things that God wants to offer you. And then he says, and I will give you, I love this word, rest. We don't do that very well. In our context, we, we work and work and work and work and work in order to rest. But in the first century context, people rested in order to go and work. We take the opposite approach. Once you've earned your keep by working and working and working, then you can take your rest. But in the Jewish context, it was very different. Their day started in the evening so that they would feast and rest and then work. And so what Jesus is saying here is not just rest in terms of this kind of, I've got so much going on, but actually rest in me. There's something that's complete. This word rest can be revive, can be refresh. It can also be resurrect or our King Jesus does that as well. And it also can be recreate or recreation. I will give you something new. I will cause your activity to cease. I will relieve your pace of life. I will refresh you from all the things that are going on. And then he says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The idea of a yoke is, it's, it's a little bit complicated for us because most of us are probably not farmers, but if you grew up in a farming town or you grew up in a, in a, as, in a farmer's family, you, you kind of understand this idea. A yoke was an agricultural tool used by farmers to uh, keep on oxen or donkeys or, or kind of um, farm animals to help the tilling of land or, or moving heavy loads from one place to another. This was a way in which you would keep the animal in submission. So it would look like this. This is going to move. There we go. This is kind of what an ancient yoke would look like. So you'd have, you'd have the ox's uh, head through there, so it's, it's over his neck, and then this part is over their shoulders, and you'd have two of them there together. And the idea is that if you can keep them going the same pace and going the same direction, then you can't get off course, and, and the farmer doesn't have to do as much difficult work. If you just had a rope on both animals, then one would try and go one way, and one would try and go the other way. This is a way of keeping that animal in submission so that the job could be accomplished best. But there was also a different version of this word yoke used in the first century. A yoke was something that a rabbinical teacher or a philosophical teacher would have. It's a way of being, a rhythm of behavior. And so Jesus, being a first century teacher, would have had a yoke similar to the other traditional leaders at the time. It could be their, their way of teaching. Jesus was a master storyteller, so it was kind of his yoke of teaching. Uh, others would have these kind of uh, yokes of, uh, you need to do this particular thing in order to do this next step. And it's kind of, uh, it was kind of seen in the first century as a demeaning thing, that you would keep your students in submission, keep them under the teaching of the master in a, in a way that they couldn't actually step out of line and follow through in a different way. But notice the invitation here. Jesus doesn't say to take on somebody else's yoke. He says to take on his, which doesn't actually indicate that Jesus is the farmer with the whip trying to get the animals to go a direction, but is actually in the yoke with those he's inviting into it. 
So Jesus makes this incredibly difficult for, thing for us to understand. Why, why would a teacher get in step with a student? Well, we're going to see that in a minute. Because the idea of this yoke is not being driven alongside of another person, but instead tied to Jesus under the same way of being. Both the agricultural kind, because we need to keep in step with him, line by line, going in the direction that he's going, and the rabbinical kind, following his way. So that was, the, that was the terminology used for the first century Christians, is that they were followers of Jesus's way. It's not just a set of teachings that he spoke, but the way in which he lived, a pattern of life that we should follow. Because then he says this, so learn from me. Learn from me. This idea is not necessarily just the teaching method of giving out information. And if, if our young adults are in the room, they know that our adult, young adult ministry, when I teach, it's not about information transfer. That's not the goal. The goal is life transformation. The idea of discipleship, or as the author John Ortberg says, apprenticing under Jesus is actually the method of operation that Jesus used. He invited people to come alongside of him and walk in step with him as he would do the things of life that he was doing. He didn't say, he didn't, he didn't say come and listen to my teachings. He said, come and follow me. Now, of course, listening to Jesus' teachings is important. And we can often get things wrong in our relationship to Jesus, assuming that he's a taskmaster seeking out demands for our obedience, a list of right and wrongs and do's and don'ts. And while, of course, there's significant value in understanding what Jesus taught, in our Western individualistic society, we often miss out on seeing what Jesus modeled as what he taught his pattern of life, his rule of life, or my favorite term, his rhythm for life. Now, that's both because I'm musical, but also because it helps us understand this is a regular thing that we need to keep in step with. So keep this image in your mind of being yoked alongside of Jesus in an exclusive claim that he's saying he is the only one that can actually provide rest for your soul. All right, back into the text. He says... Learn from me. Learn from me. For I am, what? Gentle and humble. What's interesting here is that this is the only time in the New Testament Gospels that Jesus says what his heart is like. Every time that Jesus speaks in other parts of the Gospels, he says that he is something, that he is a title, he's the bread of life, or he is the, he is the way, the truth, and life, I'm the resurrection, I'm the true vine, or I'm the son of man, I'm the son of God. Jesus uses those phrases, but this is actually the only place that I could find in the scriptures where Jesus shares with us his truest character. Learn from me because I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart. Now, the idea of the heart in the first century context is not necessarily the same way we get it. We would think of heart in terms of, like, you think Valentine's Day, you see hearts all around, right? Or when uh, you, 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 tell, you tell your, your spouse, I tell uh, Caitlin, she's always got my heart. She's always got my heart. And it's because it's, it's the truest sense of who we are. But in the first century context, it was actually the idea of the bowels of a person, like the deepest core of who they are, the thing that motivates, the thing that drives them. They can't get away from it. So this idea of Jesus' heart being gentle and his very purest, truest, deepest center of who he is being humble is quite astounding. Do you actually see Jesus that way? 
Or do we get kind of convoluted in thinking of him in a different light? Dane Ortland, in that fantastic book, Gentle and Lowly, says this, meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not what? He's not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. Jesus is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a point of finger, but open arms. Did you catch that? He's gentle. He's humble. And so this idea of gentleness and humility, this word gentle can also be translated as soft. Meaning that he's approachable. He's not prickly like some cactus that you can't put your arm around. He is not put off by your, your issues or your difficulties. He's not scared or turned away by your brokenness or by your sin. And then he says he's humble, which is the word lowly. That Jesus is marked by something. His attitude is this of lowliness. His attitude is this of humility. Jesus isn't so proud that we can't be with him. Again, Ortland says this, the point in saying that Jesus is lowly is to say that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory, his dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. What a thought. And this. Take my yoke, come and step with me. Let me teach you because I am humble. I am gentle at heart and you will. Oh, that's a great word. I can't underline it enough. You will find rest for your souls. Notice how there's no condition to it. It's not, if you come to me and, if you come to me plus, if you come to me with, no, no, no. Let me teach you. Take on my rhythms of being. Take on my pattern of life. Here's another way to read this whole passage. Take my way of being on you. Partner with me. Join in my life with me. In my life, you'll find recreation and stillness. You'll find relief for all that burdens you. And I can offer you this because I'm approachable, because I understand, because I'm humble. And I'll accept you into my way, warts and all, because my way is what will give you the most rest. What a thought. Jesus is saying he's not like other teachers. He's not trying to burden us with more things to do, more religious tasks to accomplish. He's offering us a better way, a way that leads to flourishing and rest. So here's the question. Is this the Jesus you're serving? Is this the Jesus you're in step with? Is this the view of Jesus that you take when you look to the scriptures? Are you looking at Jesus as the one who comes alongside you, that welcomes you in, that enjoys and delights in you as his child? Because it's so often easy for us to believe that Jesus keeps us at an arm's length. That he saves us from our sins, of course, because he's the savior. But then after that, he has to leave us alone to figure out our lives or clean ourselves up and fix our actions. Sort of kind of figure out how to do this way of living apart from his presence. Because now that he saved us, sure, grace was free, but the next steps cost something, right? 
Like if Jesus saved me from my sin then, he can't possibly save me from my sin again. If I keep on doing those same sins, then Jesus is going to get fed up with me. He's going he's to decide that he doesn't want me anymore. He's going to leave me in the depths of my despair. No, this is the wrong picture of Christ. See, this is the difference between discipleship and nice churchy Christian things. Let me explain. There's a difference between my effort for Jesus, which I'll, I'll, I'll spare you this, he doesn't need, and my unity with Jesus. Let me explain. My effort for Jesus is this idea of always having to measure up to a standard of perfection. Anybody struggle with that? Anybody a perfectionist in the room? Be honest. Yeah. That my life has to somehow be perfectly representative, faithfully, consistently, always, without stain, following Jesus, because somehow he needs me to. That in, that in doing so, Jesus puts up with me, that he won't kick me off of his team, that he won't shrug his shoulders when I approach him, that I'm doing all my best Christian churchy life things for him as if he needs a boost to his godhood. My unity with Christ, on the other hand, is that we are united with him, that all of the blessings that he has been given because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, that he is Lord over all. He owns everything he wonderfully and graciously offers to us. That Jesus knew what he was buying with his blood, that he willingly and lovingly chooses to go to the cross because he knows it's the only way for us to find rest. So one of my favorite modern preachers says, Jesus didn't die for some better future version of you. Did you hear that? Jesus didn't die for some future better version of you. He's not looking from the sidelines with his arms crossed and his finger wagging and, his, and a frown and scowl on his face going, man, I wish that they would get their act together. He's not looking for you to fulfill what he's already accomplished. And so if we have a wrong view of Jesus, what we start looking at is my effort for Jesus is what he actually requires instead of coming to him and finding rest. So here's the question. What's your typical response? Do you feel as though you're always disappointing Jesus, that somehow you're going to out-sin your way from his love for you, that you're going to somehow so poorly reflect his character that he's going to go, do you know what, my blood wasn't enough to satisfy that, that price there. Again, Dane Ortland says it like this. Who is Jesus? A non-vacillating friend. You've ever seen a vacillating fan? Kind of goes back and forth. You know what I'm talking about? He's not like that. Jesus perseveres. He perseveres. Heading into the final week of his earthly life in John's gospel, tells us, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus binds himself to his people. No expiration date. No end of the road. Now, true, our side of the commitment will falter and stumble. Praise God, his never does. See, this is the Jesus who invites us to himself. If we believe these things about Jesus, that he is humble, that he's gentle, that he wants to offer us rest for our souls, that his very nature is approachable and kind, unassuming, gracious, protective, and committed— we will actually find what this verse says. So with that in view, read it again. The exclusive claim, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. 
You're tired of carrying the load? Put it down. I'll give you rest. Come to me. There isn't some better version that you're going to find elsewhere. Take my yoke upon you. The one that I'm in, I want you to come in and with that with me. I want you to walk this line with me. I'm the strong one who's already doing it. I don't need your help, but come and do it with me. Let it be easy for you because I'm gentle, I'm soft, I'm not prickly, I'm approachable, and I'm humble. You'll find rest for your souls because Jesus' yoke is easy and his toiling to exhaustion is light. How's that possible? Because he's already done it. It's finished. What do you have to bring? Literally nothing. A heart saying, Jesus, I need what you have to offer. That's it. And if you're thinking, my heart that I need to offer to you, plus something, you're missing the point. It's not about something that you can do. Now, Jesus says that his yoke is easy, which is actually a slap in the face of the religious leaders. Remember, the law of God was this beautiful thing that God had given to his people so that if they followed in the covenant relationship they had with God, we're talking about like the Ten Commandments, that things would go well for them. But over the years, Israel continued to blow it. They didn't do what was right. They continued to falter and fail. And so because of that, they they get put into this historical event called the exile. And then when they get back from the exile, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, they're so terrified of going back in it again, they start building other restrictions around the laws that God has already given. So that they they couldn't possibly break those laws because now we got new, better ones. And it's legalism. The Pharisees, the legalists, they were putting additional uh, laws on the people and it was called the oral tradition of the elders. So there's the law proper, which God gives, which is life-giving and good, and then the oral tradition of the elders, which is the additional stuff. Like if you don't do it this way, then you can't possibly be doing it right. These things were outside of God's commands. These things were burdens. They, they took the fear of breaking God's law to an unhealthy extreme where they were put under even greater stipulations, greater boundaries around areas of life that the Jews didn't actually need to keep. So in this legalistic yoke that the Pharisees were putting on the Jews, Jesus is inviting people to a yoke that is easy. Like not additional stuff. No extra things just the heart of the person like God requires. And you're not being yoked to a system or to a pattern, but you're being yoked to a person because Jesus' burden is light. See, John the Apostle writes it like this in the first short letter. He says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Don't hear me saying we don't obey God. We absolutely have to obey God and his commands. But because they're not a burden... They're life-giving. They lead to our good and to our flourishing. When we follow God's commands and do the things that God says brings life, it's a blessing to us, to our neighbors, to our, our, our family members, to our people that we work with. Jesus offers us this yoke, this way of being, this way of delight, a way of freedom from hurry, a way of freedom from trying to accomplish what only he has already finished. Does that sound a little bit nicer than the typical religious language that we like to use sometimes? So here's what we gotta do. Remember the big idea. In your notes, if you've got notes with you, this part got left off because I want you to write it in. I want you to write it in every time. There's three points, they're very, very easy. They're not gonna be hard for you to remember, but I want you to write this in at the start. 
need to rest in Jesus as Lord and Savior. This is understanding that the exclusive claim of Jesus as God, that he is the only one, he is the one that the prophets and the law spoke of. This is a call to all who are weary, heavy laden, burdened, trying to keep the commandments that God had laid out, trying to keep these additional things that the elders were putting on the people. Now, so much of our Christian life is wrapped up in this phrase that we misunderstand. I believe that so many of us struggle with thinking we'll somehow forfeit our unity with Jesus because of our actions. That we'll somehow need to live up to an expectation that's been put on us by God, which he hasn't. That if we don't live up to a standard that he hasn't given, Jesus won't love us. Or at least he's not going to keep us as his own. Or that our unity with him and all the benefits of his resplendent glory will be forfeit. But let me tell you, there is nothing further from the truth. Again, my friend Dane Ortland says it this way. Now listen very, very carefully. In order for you to fall short of loving embrace into the heart of Christ now and into eternity, Jesus would himself have to be pulled down out of heaven and put back in the grave. Not going to happen. How do I know? When Jesus ascended, he was given the right seat of authority. He owns it all. He's God. He gets to determine who he keeps and who he doesn't. But for us to think that we are somehow going to sin our way out of his love means that we think that Jesus' finished work isn't actually done. That there's something else that needs to happen. He did it once, but now, like, it's, that was a long time ago. He needs to come back and do it again. No, no. Christ died once for all for the sin of the world, that anyone who comes to him, sins past, present, and future, are covered with perfect blood. And believing that Jesus doesn't delight in us as his own, and believing that Jesus hasn't won the victory enough to keep us, we're basically saying that he's got more to do, that his lordship isn't secure. Oh, friend, but his lordship is secure. It is and we can rest in his exclusive claim that he alone is Savior and Lord. That's why we sing, right? That's why we gather on a Sunday morning, we praise Jesus. We make much of Jesus. We glory in Jesus. We exalt Jesus. Because there's no other historical figure that we can go, well, this guy's a little bit better. There's nobody better. Nobody better. Do you trust in him for this rest? Jeremiah the prophet says this long before Jesus is on the scene. I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul God will replenish. Second, we need to rest in Jesus' teacher. Rest in Jesus as teacher. Not just the things that Jesus taught, now, should we follow the teachings of Jesus? Of course, because that's what leads to life and flourishing. But what if we actually modeled our lives after the behaviors of Jesus? Slowing down, stillness, connection with God. Jesus was probably the busiest person that ever lived, and he was never in a hurry. One of his best friends died, and he says, let's wait. His disciples kept on coming to him. Jesus, there's so many people around that they want to see you. He goes, yeah, let's go somewhere else. Because it wasn't just about the things Jesus taught. 
He modeled for us the way of life, the way of the purpose and how we ought to live, the way of delighting in God and all that he has given to us, the way of deep relationships with one another, the way of being present with God to enjoy all that he has created for us to enjoy. Jesus modeled these things. Jesus, as he served his disciples in the upper room, tells them about serving one another. And, and so I get the context of John 13 that I'm going to show you. But it applies the same to his rhythms and patterns of life. I have given you example that you also should do as I have done to you. What if we actually looked at the life of Jesus and instead of just reading our New Testament gospels and saying, here's all the things that Jesus said. I've got to make sure that I, I do those things just exactly how he said them, which is important, but misses the point because we can't, and he died for that. What if we did what Jesus did and regularly got away just to be with God? Left the hustle and bustle and the craziness of our regular rhythms and patterns. Sacrificed what we think we have to do for what is best for us. Jesus also knew how to party. He knew how to celebrate and enjoy the good gifts that God gave to the world. But Jesus was also laser-focused on what truly mattered. Other things, they're good, but they weren't best. Other things, helpful, but not exactly what he'd come for. His purpose was certain and unwavering. That's something for us to model. Jesus was also deeply committed to relationships. What if we lived the pattern of Jesus as well as the teachings of Jesus? Here's what I guarantee we won't feel as busy because we won't have to be as busy. And then lastly, it's this. We need to rest in Jesus as friend, as friend. Jesus doesn't, at the end of his life, he says, I don't no longer call you disciples, I call you my friends. Jesus welcomes us. He invites us as friends with his soft, gentle, humble, lowly heart. And Jesus can offer us this invitation based on his deep reservoir of who he is. He invites us to himself as friend to delight in him as he delights in us. To know him deeply, truly. To know how he, how, he, how he walks, how he does, how he speaks, how he lives. To know the innermost part of a friend. Now this, this, is, a, this is a selfish plug, but hear me out. A couple of years ago, uh, Caitlin and I were like, we need to start a life group, so we did. And the people in our life group, you've heard me talk about this before, have become our friends. Our deep, deep friends that know the junk in our lives, and we know the junk in theirs, who walk alongside of each other. They, we actually know each other so well that little kind of funny idiosyncrasies and stuff can happen. So here, here's an example. Um, the guys in our life group will know whether or not I'll stick to my guns or not. Here's the example. Uh, a few months ago, uh, about a month ago, I bought a, a group of shirts. Actually, this is one of them. Nice shirt, right? beautiful shirt. I really like it. But I didn't get to pick the shirts. It's just like, here's some extra shirts that we have. Here's a really good deal. If you buy the shirts, you can have them. And so I showed the shirts to the guys, and they're like, you won't wear that on a Sunday morning. Like, well, maybe I will. No, like, you won't wear a shirt like that on a Sunday morning. I definitely <laughs> won't wear a shirt like that on Sunday morning. 
And Caitlin will tell you that this morning I was trying to figure out whether or not I should. But for the sake of the illustration, I didn't wear it. Also because I'm chicken. But that's besides the point. They know me well. They know me well. Because we do life together. Here's the question. Do you do life with Jesus or is he just a spectator in the show of your life? Here's a question that one of my uh, spiritual mentors asked me. Do you invite Jesus into the places where you enjoy to do things or does he just watch from a distance? Is he that kind of a friend? If you are in Christ, you have a friend who in your sorrow will never lob down a pep talk from heaven. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too bound up with yours. This is the way that we truly find rest. When we see that Jesus invites us to himself as Savior, the exclusive claim that only he can offer it, yes, in his teachings that if we actually slowed down enough to do the life that Jesus did, we wouldn't feel so busy. And that he invites us as a friend who delights in us, who wants to know us deeply in the same way that we most need to. Uh, Eugene Peterson uh, was a pastor of pastors over the course of the 20th century. And uh, he wrote the paraphrase of the Bible, the message. I love the way that the message reads this. And so uh, I'm going to leave you with this. Are you tired? You worn out? You burned out on religion? Jesus says, come to me. Get away with me. You'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. This is my favorite phrase. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Anybody need that? sure a lot more of us than just me. Let's pray. Father, would you do in us this work of rest, that we would stop trying to accomplish for you what you've already finished. You don't need our efforts for you to maintain that you're the savior of the world. Would you also encourage us, God, that you don't expect us to live out perfectly everything that you taught in order for you to hold on to us as your kids? You are holding on to us far, far more firmly than we will ever be able to hold on to you. So teach us how to live these unforced rhythms. And also, will we delight in you as our friend? Because you don't just call us servants, you call us friends. You want to do life with us, not just watch from the sidelines. So would you remind our hearts, our minds, that we need to invite you into those things, Jesus. I pray for your glory and for the good of our church. Amen.